Without a ball, it's just a court. And without your spirit, it's only a game. So, together with the fans, we bring our best. For your next pregame, let's share a twist on a classic. The Hennessy Margarita. A squeeze of fresh lime juice and a bit of agave syrup. Topped off with ice and a salted rim. Mix it, shake it, pour it. And enjoy the spirit of the NBA. Hennessy. Without your spirit, it's only a game. 21 and older, please drink responsibly. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Boy, I beat your ass in... Nigga, so once we get done, we'll play right now. I can't do both, motherfucker. We're sitting here talking. Boy, I just beat this boy ass. Place a 28-game losing streak on me. Boy, I just beat this boy down in some Uno, Connect Four, Tic-Tac-Toe. If I lose, you take whatever you want off me. How about that? Ooh, that is a beautiful breakfast. Make sure to subscribe to Point Four wherever you listen to your podcast and follow us on all social channels at Point Forward. As always, Point Forward is presented by DraftKings Fantasy Sports. Check out what DraftKings has to offer this season with code POINT FORWARD. Because life's more fun when you're in on the action. DraftKings, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Age and eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. POINT FORWARD. This is Andre Iguodala. This is Evan Turner. We're trying to get to the true essence of not just basketball, but life. And that means something. 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 It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. That level of understanding has been taken out of the game. game. So let's talk about how you finna go on a losing streak just like these Pistons are going on losing streak. Damn! If you bet $100 on the Pistons to lose their first game in the streak and just roll over the winnings to bet on each game after their 23rd loss, you'd have $114,000. You could buy half of Detroit. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, yes, the um, Pist- Detroit Pistons are the topic of our DraftKings sportsbook. Mm-hmm. Um, hot topics. Who go first? You and me. You go first. What's so crazy about that? I'm a big K Cunningham fan, bro. Yeah, he's good. So, like, when you're sitting there and you're looking at, like, what's going on, I, I just can't really see how they're losing. I mean, losing 21 games is tough. You ever went through a stretch like that, losing 21 of them things? Yeah, in Philly, we lost a whole bunch of games. With Eddie Jordan? Uh, no, it wasn't Eddie Jordan uh, at all. It was, um, who was our coach? Was it Mo Cheeks? Oh, y'all did Mo Dirty. <laughs> we lost to the – who was it? We beat the Celtics to end the streak. That's all I can remember. Uh, who was on that team? Was, that was KG. No, it wasn't KG. Like, they were bad. This was when they were bad. Uh, yeah, this when they were bad. Game over. Where you see it at? Uh, <clears> you <throat> got me. Yeah, game over. I told y'all I was going to beat them. 
I'm the realest to ever do it. Now go right here so I can go right here. I beat you. Where? Yeah. Tic Tac Toe. You got me. I'm, I'm the greatest. I'm the world's greatest. All right, let's go again. I'm the world's greatest. <laughs> you think you are? So, DraftKings Sportsbook, your official partner of the betters that you want to be uh, bet responsibly. People, it's like just like short sellers. That would be the equivalent, right? This is a financial I mean, topic. I, I guess she. If if was a fifth, like who would bet? Man, take your hundred dollars and go home. <laughs> <laughs> no, it. I just said you're gonna press it back. No, no, I did. It's, it's lit, but like shit. Who would have thought? Et, you lost twenty six uh, games in a row. No, I wasn't on that team. I got traded at half. I had traded like what? Feb, Feb, February third. September. <laughs> February third or fourth. You were part of that though. January 21. Yeah, I got traded probably two weeks after. So you went two weeks without winning? Maybe. I, I did, too. We lost six in a row, seven yeah. in a row. Yeah, I feel like we started, uh, while we talking, that, that 20 and 14 team was a tank team. So we started off, we beat the Chicago Bulls with Derrick yeah. Rose. We beat the Heatles. Uh, Michael Carter-Williams had yeah. a triple-double. Yeah, and then we beat the Wizards. And those were like three of the top teams in the East. And literally, we come to that practice, everybody sat down. So even if we got, like, for instance, you go back to January. Oh, they set y'all down. They set us down. So we started, we won those three games. We go to January. We win the first four games of January. And then that's when, you know, obviously trades. So every time we got momentum, we got sat down, and the trades occurred. Now that's wild. I mean, it just is what it's the league, right? No, that is wild. I mean, you, you got to try to, I mean, you got to win the tank. But you know what's wild? What's they were doing all that for uh, – Brandon Pozinski's backup. Who is Brandon Pozinski's backup? Andrew Wiggins. Oh. And Jabari Jabari Parker. Oh, yeah. Isn't that crazy? It was crazy. So, I think that's... uh, That's fine, Ben. That was actually lit. Yeah, well, I, I think they were saying something like they compared them to the 49ers, and I think in, like, three or four years or two years, I think the 49ers got, like, more wins, obviously, in lesser games played than the Pistons do over that span, and it's, like, a quarter oh, of the games. I forgot yeah. what team it was, but it's either the 49ers or somebody along those lines. the Niners. We going crazy right now. Yeah, y'all are. Y'all might, y'all might win it, bro. Yeah. Christian McCaffrey got me 43 points in fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> bro, I was almost out. Bro, I was almost out, G. Man, shout out to Christian McCaffrey. Game over. I'm Where the world's got? greatest. You are the world's greatest. I'm the world's greatest. At, we can't play no more, dog. I'm just too good at this. You think so? Yeah. So crazy. Connect four. All right, let's start recording. Are we done recording? I'm so good. All right, let's lock in. Let's go. I'm so good. Nigga, I'm talking to you oh, and playing the game. All I want for the holidays this year is some NBA action. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks and instant dub just for you. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code POINTFORD. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code POINTFORD. The crown is yours.
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778 hope Y or text hope 467 In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort, Kansas, 21 and older. Age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Point. Forward. We had, uh, we had some viral moments this summer, it feels like. Unexpectedly, we weren't trying. Uh, shout out to my man, Lil Russell. Um, we spent some time with him. His episode will be dropping. But he spoke to something that kind of um, resonated with me in terms of not trying to chase the vari- virality. I like that word, virality. But we caught a wave just on our basketball discussion and it being so organic. Uh, E.T., you spoke to, um, you know, buying in and actually losing value, buying into a team and how that can affect your your outlook on your profession, on your passion. Um, and that was with uh, the one and only J.J. Reddick. And so without further ado, it was our turn to put J.J. on a hot seat. Point forward. I want to know your take on how officiated, officiating should be represented in the game of basketball. Mm. The art of officiating. Mm. Represented. Mm. Represented. Like So, so at, in what... Form, shape, fashion should officiating play in sports, in basketball? Well, I think there's two things. There's the technical side and the personal side. And on the technical side, I've always said this. NBA players are some great, they were great actors. Not good actors. We are great actors. I'm passionate. And so <laughs> we, we are all, we're all method actors. We, we get on the court and mm. we literally were in character. And I think we understand the technical side. So the really smart players exploit certain things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been true since the beginning, right? I also think there are certain players, you go all the way back to Wilt Chamberlain, let's say, who some seasons took 17 free throws a game. There are certain players who have a physical advantage, and that could be size, that could be speed, that could be strength, that could be D-cell, like Luca or like Joel, plus they've got the brain. And so they're always going to be at an advantage somehow. And the defense, because they're at a disadvantage, often gets called for fouls because these guys are so smart. So on the technical side, I think it's a really hard thing for referees. I do. I think it's a really hard thing. There are certain calls night to night that I watch, and I'm like, how the F did you miss that? How, how did you miss that? Mm-hmm. The second part, I think, is the interesting part, which is the personal part. Because I, mean, I, coach, I coach young kids who, in the middle of the game, were like, the referees are screwing us. Like We <laughs> grow up with this mindset mm-hmm. that refs are screwing us. Nobody taught them that I know of, that I never, I've never talked about the refs to my son, and he'll come over to me in the middle game. The refs are, I don't like these refs. And I'm just like, dude, what? So we grow up with that mindset. We get the league, and we're all assholes. And how do you expect the referees to, all of the time, 100% of the time, act in an impartial manner? Because that's it's impossible. You, because that's what you get paid for. Yeah, not only that, referees in college, high school, and middle school, they actually suck. 
So like when you get to like <laughs> when you get to like the pros, you should know some shit, right? You guys, you guys don't think it's a hard job. At the no, I, I no, think it's a hard very, job. Very, very, very hard job. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely think it's a, I mean, to run up and down a court at that age is tough. So I can only imagine yeah, yeah, trying to. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna ask you because because you you've been so involved and you're currently the uh, interim acting. I don't know the exact title, but the acting president acting of the NBPA. Yeah. So you know all this. We have discussed as players because it was ongoing when I played. I know they're trying now even more with this uh, NBA referee Twitter account. But uh, the idea of transparency, mm -hmm. where the refs are somehow held accountable, I feel like the, I feel like the players have consistently voiced that. And I, I can go back in my career, the last five or six or seven years, like every time we met with the referees, every time we met with the PA about these issues, like all, I think all, what I heard in the room every time was all, I, all we want is transparency. And sometimes some of that transparency, transparency is why are certain officials refereeing my games? Mm -hmm. Why are certain officials refereeing this deep in the playoffs? Tony Brothers. How are these referees grading out like this? And the players wanted to know that. Now, I don't know that we get that information now. We certainly didn't get that information when I played. Um, and so I think that's... Like, we recognize, I like think every player impartially will be like, all right, referees are going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. Basketball is a, a game of mistakes, right. right? The transparency piece, I think, is where the frustration lies sometimes with players. I don't have that answer yet. Emphasis okay. on yet. But we do have an issue where we've had rules changed. Like, they changed rules based on awards like minimums you know it sounds like a marketing deal we have a, you have your minimums right we have a minimum games played to get an award because of what load management because we don't want our star athletes to not play on the road but at the rate that these our star players are being ejected <laughs> What was the point of this minimum games things played? The, at the way that I'm seeing guys be ejected. That's all I'm saying. No, that's real. I'm shit. I'm shocked that like Joker got ejected like what, like two or three times already? In Chicago. Yeah, that was the why fans I'm... going berserk. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I don't mind favoritism in that situation. You know what I mean? Because people are there to see Joker and all those guys play. Oh, that's a good only idea. thing I have a problem with when we had those transparency meetings at the beginning of the year. They always bring up people. They bring up, you know, the the you know the respect for the game clause, and you have to ask a question like, okay, so what about Draymond? <laughs> all right, and then when they talk about fouls, they're like, all right, my G, everybody nine straight, we might get four free throws a month. When we see James Harden, he's shooting twenty five free throws a night. Now I played basketball my whole life, but make it make sense, my guy. I'm not going three months without touching the line. And, like, when it comes down to transparency, it's one from, like, good players and it's from everybody else and being like, what the fuck are we playing? Well, I, th I do think, <clears throat> historically, we haven't had this problem. And I've asked a few refs, um, Crawford, Danny Crawford. Oh, great guy. I had some really good conversations with him. Being in Chicago in the summers, working out with Tim Grover, and he would always, you know, say to me, MJ— wasn't a fan of mine because I didn't call fouls 
for MJ at the rate that he thought he should get foul calls. But if you go back and you saw the last dance, the same energy MJ had for his teammates, he had for the refs. But when you watch a game, the refs are just able to go about their business. I mean, they had Dennis Rodman, for Christ's sake. Like, I feel like Dennis was 10 times worse. And so I feel like it's a part of the culture. Not I shouldn't say the culture. It's a part of the occupation to be able to handle certain things. Just like you got a kindergarten teacher who's got to deal with some kids mm-hmm. who may need to be told something yeah. four or five times. And but the kindergarten teacher's being paid thirty thousand. And so we wanna if we wanna play that route, we can go to the salaries of some of our referees and see, hey, you should be able to put up with a kid an adult acting like a kid for for forty eight minutes. The the other part of this, because uh, I talked about this actually today on the old man of the three things where we talked about uh the physicality and how you can't touch players today. Um the reality is uh, 1980s, and I just started with 1980 because that's Magic and Larry rookie year. I mm-hmm. think that's the start of the modern NBA. Everyone was a player Mavericks, before that. Ma- Ma- I'm, I start 1980. Ma- I'm Magic just messing Larry. with you. Ma- Ma- no, Mavs, Mavs were added in 81, I think. So 23 teams. Uh, 1980s, average free throws, 29 free throws a game across the board, meaning every team mm-hmm. averaged 29 free throws a game. Uh, 1990s, I believe it was 26. 2000s, it was 25. Uh, 2010s, it was 23 or 24. 2020s, it's 22.7. So across the board, every single decade, as the rules favor the offense, offensive players are actually getting fouled less, Mm -hmm. shooting less free throws. And you think about the 90s, when the pace, most teams had 80 to 90 possessions. You know, league leaders would be, you can only track back to 96, 97, but league leaders would be like around 93 to 95 mm-hmm. in terms of pace. And and now you talk about 104 possessions. The, the slowest pace teams are 97 or 98 possessions. So we have more possessions, and yet we're shooting more free throws. What I think part of it is, is star players – have the ball in their hands more. Mm-hmm. They're functioning more as hubs rather than just like, we're going to dump down the ball, we're going to ISO you. So star players are, are, are getting fouled more and everybody else is getting fouled less. I think that's some of it. The other part about just the whole conversation, you you have to think at, that social media at least is a part of this where we're getting these last two minutes report and we're, we're having a discourse around that every single time. And it's a non-nationally televised game, and there's a bad call, and it gets viral. So I think some of this like frustration that's building uh, is because it's just in front of us all the time now. And the players see that. Players see you. You guys know this. Mm-hmm. Players see everything. Right. Players see everything. So I think that's that's part of it. I do find it interesting though that on average, even with the increased pace right now. Especially, 80s had high pace. We we can't exactly, there wasn't tracking error, so we can't exactly, but we can look at field goals and yeah. free throws and turnovers and all that and see, all right, they, they played at a higher pace. Um, but 90s, 2000s, 2010s, like the pace was lower. And yet we're still, there's more possessions in a game and we're shooting less free throws per game on average across the board. Yep. Now, I'm not 
so much into the foul calls. I'm more so into the officials having a personality more than ever. When have we ever spoken about the officials in the manner that we do now? Like you'll hear announcers speaking to the uh, towards the refs by name. They be mm-hmm. having to work at the game. <laughs> you walk in, but you here for who? <laughs> keep going. That's <laughs> the truth. That's how popping they are. But keep going. You wondering? Here go the answers. But but rock. No, and I'm serious about this. And that's why I say what to what form are they taking as officials? Are they just regulating the game, or? Is there a bigger place for them within the game? That's all I'm trying to figure out because, yeah, but if we give them a name, uh, image, and likeness, <laughs> they're going to want they cut to. No, I dig you, but at the same time, they did do that. They did. We keep forgetting they did do that walkout, that silent protest at the bubble. You remember that, right? <laughs> yes, I remember that. <laughs> all right, they woke up and did that. Give them some credit. JJ, do you remember that? <laughs> it was on TV. I think I must have been gone by then. I must have been. Gone it was by at the then. bubble because I was only there till about August, mid-August. No, they did it early. I left on. right after the. They did it early on. They did it early. What, God, I don't wait, what hotel were you at? Oh, I was at the shitty hotel. Oh, I was they, the they did it hotel. at. They did it at the big hotel. Oh, okay, yeah. Evan, you were on. Were you in Boston that year? What for? Uh, what was it? Bubble? No, who, who'd you? Put? Yeah, the I bubble. was done. So by time my team didn't make the bubble, and I retired right after that. Oh, your team didn't make the bubble. So I would have got traded from Atlanta and Minnesota, and then we didn't make the bubble. Yeah, like that's seven right. teams, yeah. eight teams didn't go to the bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's like the bottoms. Yeah. So the, the bottom in the standings got the worst hotel. It was the uh, it was the main hotel. Whatever I don't know, I forgot the name of our hotel. But the main hotel is where they had the uh, yeah the protest the protest. They had a silent protest. It was. You know, I, I appreciated the solidarity, the support. Here's a, here, here, here for both of you guys. This is a, maybe just a, a thought starter here, uh, but I feel like the referees are part of the game in in the same way that a broadcast is part of the game. In the same way that every fan that play, pays a ticket, every fan that watches league pass, uh, the trainers, players, coaches front office, sponsors, like the the game betters now. The game is so much bigger, I feel like. Mm-hmm. There's so many more uh, players and actors and characters in the game today. And in some ways, and this has been good for players, in some ways we've all been amplified. Uh, you can't, I mean, you can't tell me beyond maybe soccer – NBA players are some of the most popular athletes in the world. For sure. You know, you probably have a couple race car drivers, definitely soccer, you know, probably some cricket players out there. I don't know. But NBA players are very popular. So it's been good. It's been good. But also everybody else has gotten amplified a little bit. And I think sometimes, like, everybody's just kind of trying to find – I think there's a moving part here to this where, like, everybody's just kind of trying to find their place in this new era of – attention and social media and some effort of transparency. I did a bit last year for DraftKings where <laughs> I made fun of that that tweet they had after LeBron got fouled against the Celtics. They talked about they we're going to have many sleepless nights. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I'm like, let see? it go. It was a game in December. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. Uh, 
Come on. So we talk about like the new era, new you know the the new wave of everything. So in this chapter, your new era of uh, you know ESPN analysts, new era, new media. We want to go back to like the beginning time and when you set that tone. Hennessy and Mitchell and Ness have come together for the ultimate drop, a limited edition collection to celebrate Hennessy's continued partnership with the NBA. Because some things just go together, like Evan and myself. Hey man, man, remember when we met back in the day? At Tim Grover's attack facility, mm-hmm. I think it was like 08. I was finishing up my freshman year, and you were about to prepare to get that bag, right? Yes, my extension year. We met in 08. In 2010, we fast-forwarded to be each other's teammates. Mm-hmm. I obviously thought I was better than you. Then the first day of practice, I go baseline. And you you Brian blocked my shot before Brian. That was Brian. a good block, G. <laughs> bro, I that, remember that. Bro, that was amazing block. I'm looking like, bro, what just happened back there? And then I'm like thinking something, like talking to my agent. Like, bro, you just said I was better than this? <laughs> Look, on the court, you're surrounded by a collection of personalities, egos, and talent. But when the pieces come together, that's when you form a great team. The same thing is true when you mix a great drink. Different ingredients come together for the first time, complementing one another to make something out of this world. And beyond the drinks, this drop with Hennessy and Mitchell and Ness celebrates the intersection of basketball with art, music, and fashion. Elements of culture that represent ways the fans and players pay homage to the game. The exclusive collection will have a limited drop available for both in retail and online. Check out at Hennessy US on Instagram for more information. Hennessy, without your spirit, there's only a game. 21 and older, please drink responsibly. You were one of the first, uh, you were the first NBA player to have a podcast and the second NBA player after our good friend Draymond Green to do it during the season. So how'd you get into that? How'd that come about? And was that like a smooth transition from your rap career that you had with Ryan Anderson? <laughs> <laughs> I had I had retired. I had I had retired from rap at some point in college. Uh, I, I had a brief um, a brief return to the game <laughs> around 2009 2010. Uh, Ryan Anderson made a beat for me, and I wrote a couple verses, and <clears throat> we may have recorded the first verse in his like house or something. I don't know. Anyways, what was your flow like? Um, I would say it was like, uh, a mixture of Nas, to live quality and Eminem. All right, bet. You might as well throw Andre three stack in there too. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> uh, no. So, so anyway, so in the summer of 2000, 15, uh, Woj uh, had signed this deal with Yahoo, and he basically was given his own little vertical platform. It was called The Vertical. And so there was going to be writing. Him and Chris Mannix were going to have their own podcast. So they asked me to write something for them. It was like eight pre-written things uh, inside the NBA, right? Uh, Trade deadline, start of the season training camp, uh, Christmas Day games, whatever. You could pick eight sort of touch point moments. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of anxiety about it. And I was like, whoa, I'm good. Like, I don't really feel like white writing and having like this deadline hanging over me. I'm such a fucking idiot. Had I known that every week you'd had to do a podcast with the deadline hanging over <laughs> you, I would have signed up for the eight, eight part writing series. Yeah. I'm stupid. <laughs> but anyway, so he came back to me a couple of months later and was like, hey, we're all getting our own podcast. You should have your own. Um, and so, you know, I started... February of 2016, I was the first active NBA player to do one. I think I was the second athlete ever to have his own podcast. 
And, you know, that it was like a learning curve, like anything else. Um, and I enjoyed doing it, but that first run with Yahoo, I think I did 40 or 41 episodes hmm. in a row. And my second son was born. It was a contract year. And I was just like, I, I can't, I can't do this for the rest of the season. So they let me out of the contract, uh, dabbled at the ringer for a bit. Um, and knew that I was kind of ending my time in the NBA. I knew that going into 2020, 2021, was likely going to be my last year when I launched the old man of the three by late fall. I knew it was going to be my last year because I was hurt and I'd missed that time with my kids in the bubble. And I knew they were going to be away from me during that season, uh, you know, with me living in new Orleans and them staying in Brooklyn. So, you know, I, it was like a, it, you guys know this, it's a big commitment and we're doing two a week. Now we do one on Monday and one on Thursday. So, uh, the podcasting is a lot. It's a lot of work. I always tell people it's my full-time job. And my my side hustle is ESPN. My my side gig is ESPN. Like, and I'm committed to both in the same way. I I treat them the same, but in terms of time spent, it it's more so on the podcasting side. So when did you start crossing over and taking it far more serious? I know when you started up, you're like 2015. You did a Yahoo, and you went over to the Ringer, and recently you just started 342 Productions because you're like, shit, I'm working so much, I need to own this IP. Can you go into that and what that was like and, you know, were you kind of, you know, more so surprised how you're able to help build, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I I had made the decision that I wanted to own my own IP and own my own podcast and own my own feed way before The Ringer sold. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, was it weeks, months? I don't I can't even tell you. But it was definitely on my mind. Um, and I said this the other day to Zach Lowe, but, you know, I knew to build a real podcast and I knew to monetize that it had to be full time. It had to be every week. You know, yeah. Ben Winston, who's a very close friend of mine, he's a producer. I think he's won like 12 Emmys. Hmm. Um, he's based out of LA. You know, when I first stopped with Yahoo, he was like, bro, your audience, they need to, ex like, they need to know when the pod's coming out. You, you can't leave them hanging. They need to know, like, every Monday, every Wednesday, whatever it may be. 7 a.m., there it is on the feed. Mm -hmm. You can't build an audience otherwise. And so I knew that. That was going back to 2016. I knew that. Um, it just, I didn't feel like fully committed to it. And really, I, you know, and, I, and Bill got mad at me on Twitter for whatever reason, but really the, the, the moment for me was when we did the Zion pod in January of my last year with, with uh, or my first year with New Orleans right before COVID. We did the Jimmy pod on video. We did the Duncan pod on video. And all of a sudden you saw a different type of reach than you did just on audio. And I said, oh, there's this thing called Zoom. Why didn't we discover this quicker? <laughs> like, yeah. Seriously. Yeah. And so during sort of the spring lockdown, we recorded every week. And then we got into a rhythm of like, okay, we can, we can actually do this um, every week. And we, you know, launching in the bubble was a little difficult just because I was schedule in the bubble was crazy and like i remember we, we recorded the damian lillard lillard episode the night before it came out and i had a game and i was like scrambling to get on the bus the bus decided they wanted to chill for a bit dame's on zoom with tommy like just chopping it up waiting on me i'm like running back to my hotel room like not you know it's dame like yeah, i'm yeah. like is this guy gonna just get off the zoom yeah, like i'm yeah, he's, yeah. i'm 30 minutes late um so it was like, it was challenging to get it done during the bubble, but then you just get in a rhythm and it's fine. But 
yeah, I think I think that was that was kind of the period of time where it was just like I, the the video component, and especially once we you know we'd done all three of those in person, it was like doing these in person, doing the video, it's just better. Mm-hmm. Just I like it better. I enjoy it more. And how are you composing? You know, in in terms of what are you looking for for each player? I know it's something different, but yeah, oh for sure. What have you? sort of unlocked that you feel like differentiates you from everybody else? I don't know that I'm different than anybody else. I think I uh, try You're to, pretty good at it. You're really good no, at it. No, I, I, here's what I try to do. And I tried to do this from the beginning, and I think I've gotten better at this. <clears throat> In terms of the comfort level of a guest, I want it to feel like we're having coffee. I I, I had these conversations. The, the, the podcast conversations, I have... All the time, with friends at dinner, uh, you and you, the three of us, we had it out in in the, the living room at my house yeah. when you guys were here in September. Yeah. Like we, you had it on the bus as players. So I wanted, I wanted to feel like that. So that's always the goal. And the other part of it is, is in terms of the uniqueness of every episode. Like I think about the player themselves. So there's specific things to that player you certainly want to talk about. But beyond that, there's Things about that player where you can have a conversation that fits into the bigger picture about the NBA, about the athlete experience, about growing up somewhere, about college recruitment, whatever it may be. You know, our conversation where E.T. talked about uh, diminishing his role because he was buying in. Mm -hmm. Like, that was one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast. And it was perfect because it was E.T. And he's candid and he's honest and he's open. Like... So you look for those opportunities, I think, to touch on bigger picture stuff. And, and specifically when you have a great guest, it works. So maybe that's what I'm good at. I don't know. I don't know. Was there any like guests or any moments that kind of shocked you? Like I saw some of the clips from, from the Porzingis situation and some of the stuff he was saying, I'm like, damn, he's really mm-hmm. keeping it real. Yeah. Like, and it's not even 10 <laughs> years removed. This shit was like 18 months. <laughs> Tell you, remove. Are there any... Interviews or even a Kyrie situation where you're like, okay, this is going to be big, yeah. different parts, like all that type stuff. You you kind of feel, you kind of feel it in the interview, whether or not you think the audience will respond to it, but you can never predict it perfectly. Like I remember the the PJ Tucker story, which was in person, in my first year of retirement. PJ, we met him at the Four Seasons downtown. And he talked about this moment his rookie year, right before they made, right before they went to the playoffs, where they brought him in the office, the coaches, the front office, and they said, "PJ, we've had this camera on you at all times at practice and the arena. I want you to watch this video." And it was him on the bench with bad body language. It was him during timeouts not being with the team. It was him after practice just walking off, not getting extra work in. You can't be an NBA player and do this, PJ. And they cut him two weeks later. Yeah. And he talked about that being the moment that turned his career around. And he had to go grind overseas for a few years yeah. before he made it back. It's like those moments, like when they happen, you're like, yeah, okay. People are going to respond to this. This is new. This is unique. You try to get that out of every guest. It's, it's damn near impossible to do it every time. But like, that's what the hope is, is that you, you give NBA fans specifically, because I bought into just like, this is an NBA podcast. You yeah. try to give NBA fans a different perspective than the constant bullshit that happens on television, than the constant bullshit that happens on Twitter. Let's give the real. 
Let's give the real. When you talk about give the real, um, one moment where I think, uh, you know, I always appreciated you was um, when you stuck up for the NBA players and you uh, versus Mad Dog, Chris Russo. And you're discussing like the under undertone of them speaking like a Fox News type term. Dre and always speak and we're always like, yo, it's either you get it or you don't. So where did like that empathy come from? Where did that situation come from where it gave you bravery to speak up? But like you're also aware certain people act like they don't understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. I am white. You guys know that yeah. I'm white. I've almost always been aware of how people talk about athletes, specifically black athletes. Um, it's always bothered me. So I, I don't like that. Wasn't that what happened on first take was not unique. Like I've had that. Yeah. It just happened to be on live television. Yeah. I've had that conversation with people. Yeah. And so I, it, that it was weird. Cause Everything that is, I would say almost everything, but I think everything, everything that has ever went viral on first take involving me has been my response to something. Mm. And it's almost every time been my response to something that wasn't planned. You know, that, that the Bob Cousy thing, mm. that segment was on Kyrie flipping off the Boston Celtics fans. <laughs> That's what that segment yeah. was on. And I had heard him talking on a previous second a segment just killing Chris Paul, killing Chris Paul, just completely diminishing his career and yeah. his accolades. And it, and it, so I just was like, hey, you know, let's address this Chris Paul situation. And he just happened to say Bob Cousy's the greatest point guard of all time. Now I found about a month later, I found an old YouTube clip of Mad Dog's top five on first take. And he listed his top five point guards ever. <laughs> And Bob Cousy wasn't on there. So then I realized Mad Dog's just an agitator. Like a lot of this is just for television. <laughs> it was a good lesson to learn. It was a good lesson to learn. He's like, man, this kid takes his job too serious. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you found a knack for the media, whether it's audio, video, live, first take. Like you've had some of the We've seen, I think, some of the best moments with you and Stephen A. And I don't think it's planned, but is there – I know you're saying it's not planned, but what's your energy like, like naturally, going into these basketball conversations? And have they, have they been like this – like, how long has it been like this? You know, we talk about, like yeah. – because it's it, the only thing that bothers me a little bit is I can't be as natural as I would like to be because I'm going to offend somebody, right? <laughs> you, know, you got to switch up your hobbies. Like you do what but I here's do. The thing. Like, you Andre, do it. <laughs> Andre, Andre, I, 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 I offend people all the time. I offended someone for saying they were good at something. <laughs> I, I you know apparently, guys, I apparently, I, I apparently disrespected. And, and Dominique Wilkins on multiple podcasts has come after me about this. I apparently disrespected Larry Bird for saying that he was a top 10 player of all time and one of the greatest shooters of all time, but objectively not a top five three-point shooter of all time. That apparently is disrespectful. You you can't go on those shows and worry about offending someone. No, I, You I, ask I, me what my disposition is? Honestly, first time on the show, I had no fucking idea what first take was. No idea. I didn't pay. I paid zero attention to the media. I knew it existed, 
I played along if I if I had to do an interview, whatever. Like I was not, I didn't, I didn't pay attention. I didn't, I didn't know what first take was. And then I was like the first day I they asked me a question. I gave a wishy-washy answer. Like, this is the debate show. You got to give us something more than that. And I was like, oh, it's a debate show. So I go in there. <laughs> I know the show's meant to entertain. I'm a sick fuck. I'm competitive. I go in there with a combative mindset every time. And Stephen A. and Molly know this. Mad Dog knows this. Like, I go in there, and if we're going to have an actual discussion about something, I'm trying to win. I'm trying to win. And I'm not trying to win saying hot shit just to say hot shit. 90% of what I say is not a, necessarily an opinion. Yeah. I'm backing it up with facts. I'm backing it up with logic. It's not... So that's how I approach it. It's 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 a competition. No, where, where, where I struggle is you just wear multiple hats. And wearing multiple hats... Like the position I'm in now, I'm very cautious of being critical towards players. Like I can't, I can't say yep. a guy is good or not. Yeah, you probably shouldn't say nothing after the other day. We'll have another day. <laughs> I know what I'm just saying with KD when you gave him all the credit. But I, oh my you god, you know what I mean? I, I felt like after the other days, like fuck it. But the only good thing I will say, if like Draymond cursed KD out and he came on his podcast, I think we have a chance for him to show up to our podcast with that compliment. I have no comment <laughs> to anything. What? <laughs> Why are you playing it safe now, man? Why are you playing it safe now? Because, like, there is a duty to it. I do. Like, there's a duty to it. Like, I got to do it right. And, like, I got young guys, you know, they have to. Like, there is a certain standard to which you have to hold yourself. Now, one thing I won't do is take myself too serious. And I think that yeah. happens a lot. Like, people take themselves way too serious in their roles. Now, there are responsibilities you know, it's like you're a, you're like you the police and you can hang out, but then you become police chief. You kind of have to like do something yeah, a little bit different. So it's kind of it's kind of in that realm. But um, I guess I guess once I figure out how to tailor it on the other side, like I can go at, I, I can talk about the referees or figure out how to be a partner with the league, but at the same time hold the league accountable on things that I think they got wrong. But being respectful about it, it's just all. It's like a, it's what you call it—a mind fuck. That's really what yeah, it's like. Yeah, you you have you have a unique situation if you're going to be talking about the game and players because of your position with the MBPA. I, I would say I've I've found it hasn't popped up a lot, but I've found that calling games and doing first take and doing a podcast, it. I mean, I gotta, I gotta speak my truth. I gotta speak what I think, what I really believe on these shows or on my podcast. And then I've got to go interview a coach, let's say, mm. before a game. Like that to me is like the hard part. Where like, you know, like Doc last year, you know, having to talk about like his job security and then go interview him before a playoff game. Like that's weird, you know. Or like he had bashed. He had bashed the Clippers. He had thrown this like <laughs> random thing towards yeah. the Clippers. And I was like, what? And I went on the podcast with Jamal that week and I was like, what? You know, we talked about it. Motherfucker, I had to call a game three days later. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So we're we're there, we're in there, we're in there in the in the, you know, coaches meeting or whatever with the thing. And it's like, ah, oh, this is awkward. Right. This that makes sense. Well, speaking of coaching, yeah. you remember, uh, I think we spoke this September, you were considering taking a Toronto Raptors job. And you're talking about your personality, disposition, and kind of 
it's funny, man. I I think about like I think about coaching so much that I I have a a note on my phone where I write down things as they come to me, and it's not X's and O's because p- partly I'll t- explain the X's and O's first. The X's and O's thing to me, and I told Toronto this when they I'm like I don't know who's on the team next year. I don't know who's on the team. I can't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell you the system I'm gonna play. I certainly, I certainly believe in certain things. Like my teams would probably play mostly drop coverage, but you got to be able to do a bunch of different things in pick and roll, mm-hmm. right? My teams would have great spacing. I know that. But outside of that, I, I who who are my guys? Who are who are my role players? Who are my screeners? Like I, I need to know all this stuff. So X's and O's wise, like. I definitely am paying attention. Like I have plays written down, uh, after timeout plays, end of game plays. I use some of that shit with my kids actually because I coach my son's fourth grade travel <laughs> team. Um, but for me, it's more about like the philosophy and the the team building mm-hmm. and the relationship building. That is as important to me, and the for the reason I want to coach as like. The, the mad scientists, X and O's, looking up film. All, like, it's really about the relationship you have with players, with the staff. That is what I miss the most. Being in competition every night, that feeling you get. Like, come on, that's, that's what I miss the most. You know, you, you, you can't replicate that. You can't replicate that. Is and, it? Oh, and, that's, and that's it for me. Like, that, that to me is like the draw of coaching, is, is just the competition Mm -hmm. camaraderie team building relationships leadership all that stuff well going back as a player you play for the clippers amongst other teams and uh, i believe in 2013-14 certain people said that was one of the best teams to never win a championship so when you look back on it i've heard numerous times of you kind of you know having like i wish we could have had a different way type moment is that what makes you want to work on leadership culture and kind of coaching in that sense because you see the difference between you know a little potential yeah. in reaching that full potential? Yeah. I think it wasn't just that team. It was it was different points in time in your career where you tried, but you, you weren't necessarily in the right position mm-hmm. to problem solve completely. And so, you know, some of that coaching to me is like, coaching is to, also to me about delegation. Hmm. Like I've played for coaches that, well, I'm going to do every shoot around. Well, how are your assistant coaches getting better? Yeah, right. I'm going to do every film session. Well, how are your assistant coaches getting better? Right. It's to me, it's about like all this. We're all growing together. How are my players getting better? How are my coaches getting better? All that stuff. You play for Tibbs? <clears throat> Did you play for Tibbs? You're funny. <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> You're funny. The one thing I'll say about the experience with with the Clippers is. We look, there's no guarantee that we would have won anything, but there is a level of, I think, regret on all of our parts. Whenever I think about that, even the good times, I get this, I don't get even get nostalgia. I get just like disappointment and sadness because it could have, yeah. could have been even better. And it was a great four years. Like it was great. It could have been better. And you have some and great players too. Certain things, certain things we, we, we addressed or we tried to address and it, it the interpersonal dynamics of the NBA are the most fascinating thing to me. And I'm not saying as a coach that I would like master that and I would be the best at that. I'm just saying 
I like doing that stuff. That doesn't scare me. That actually gets me excited. And I, I use this when I did the interview with you know uh, Toronto. I was, I was like, so much of the NBA is about uh, conflict, confrontation, and confrontation to me gets this negative rap as a word, right? Mm. Confrontation means two people are fighting. Mm-hmm. Oh, confrontation to me is about conflict resolution and conflict avoidance. And some players, some coaches are like, I, I don't want any confrontation. I, I don't want that. And it, to me, it, it like does a disservice. Have you guys ever played, played with, we were like, Dre was probably, Dre will probably be in the Hall of Fame, but we were all sort of role players that starred in our roles in different capacities, right? We talked about it on my podcast. Mm-hmm. Have you ever played with a great player that didn't want to be coached? Like in some way. A whole lot of them. Hey there, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast. And yes, we are in the thick of the college hoop season. Our pod runs at least three times a week and covers everything you need to know. From the power conference team to the mid-majors, the scoops, the stories, game predictions, previews, huge recaps, everything. We cover it all. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your pods. You, you did. The great players that didn't want to be coached? Didn't want to be coached. Yeah. Name them. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But what I was more referring to guys that are actually uh, like established. Yeah, that's right. versus, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Talent I'm sorry. versus talent. I'm sorry. But, no, but, but on that point, I, I think that's a, that illustrates to a, to a degree. And I, I, don't, I don't know Kedrick and I don't know the circumstances. And we talk certainly about fit and role when, mm-hmm. when ET and you were on my podcast. But you know, th- there are certainly intangibles for players beyond just skill for lasting. And we, we discussed this to a degree, but like th- there, you have to want it for yourself to some degree. Mm-hmm. There, you, you have to be willing mm-hmm. to like, I don't want to say bootstrap it a bit, but like I, I, I went to the Valley, dude. Yeah. My, my first and second year, I was a joke. Yeah. Literally a joke. And people were happy you were fucking I'd be, out I'd be reading yeah. articles about some random th- event, and it'd be like, and this person is about as active as J.J. Redick on the bench of the Orlando Damn. Magic. I'd be like, what? What do I have to do with that? Yeah. Like, it was it was funny to people. Hey, this guy doesn't play. Like, I had to be like, oh, why am I not playing? Maybe it's maybe it's a little bit me. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, but you also— Evan's, Evan's per- perspective, by the way, was really helpful for me, honestly. Uh-huh. His perspective— because no, I mean that. I, I I watched that clip like three or four times, and the thing you talked about, I think we've all felt to some degree where you you really believe you're doing everything right. You really believe that the work you're putting in, your attitude, the the way you're interacting with coaches, sometimes even your play on the court, you think you're doing everything right. And you're not getting more. You're not getting the results. And it's like this feeling of helplessness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, beyond all just those intangibles that I always talk about, like love of the game, competitiveness, willing to work, basketball IQ, like you can have all that stuff. And sometimes still it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. 
it's why it's the fucking NBA. And there's yeah, only yeah, yeah. so many jobs. Really it's, timing is everything. They, there's yeah. talented motherfuckers, and like you end up in the wrong situation, and yeah, it hurts you. It hurts you. And so like reframing a little bit about like what I, what I talked about in that conversation was control. Like I, I got to just worry about the things I can control, and and believe it ultimately will work out. And guess what? You can do that, and sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to. That was helpful for me. Yeah, but you switched up a bit in that sense as well. Uh, I remember hearing about something like your frat boy ways at Duke, but then you kind of changed <laughs> up your diet and your regimen, and you start, I mean, you changed your body up. You used to be like a fat boy, like you know what I'm saying? And then now yeah, you're it, Duke, Was it you're, fat you're, Was it fat or frat? No, you uh, frat. It was Maybe both. both. Frat, Maybe and both. Anytime <laughs> you wear the tank top under, you, you, you're fighting something, right? Your Duke jersey look, your Duke jersey look a lot different on you. You don't even look like J.J. Reddick. Yeah, right? you, you look like a Duke. totally different yeah, person. Yeah. What about, what was it like, uh, you know, playing at Duke and playing for Coach K? And you talk about that time of being hated or, you know, even in Orlando where people were kind of being happy that you weren't playing because of how great you were at Duke. When you first went there, did you realize that, you know, you were going to be embarking on something like that? I had no idea. No idea. In fact, I remember sophomore year early, and this was really not even at the peak. This was like December break. Everybody's out of school. We're still practicing before we got like four days for Christmas before we got back on campus. The rest of the students were still on break. And I called my sisters to campus and I had dinner with them. And I said, I, just, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, this is too hard. Uh, and I remember saying, it's like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, it wasn't just hard because people hated me. It was hard because it was a harder basketball. It was a step up. Yeah. And I didn't understand. I, I, I always worked. I, I didn't understand really the value of going above and beyond and being diligent and regimented and all that stuff. And it, I didn't figure it out the rest of my sophomore year either. I mean, I like it's funny looking back. I was like a vote away from first team all ACC. So a second team all ACC, third team all American, made the final four, leading score on the final four team. It was the worst I could ever play my sophomore year. The worst. And I was terrible. And I had these series of conversations with coach in April. I went even further down the fucking spiral I was on. They tracked me down in like May 20th, May 20th or May 21st and took me to coach K's office. And I was 220 or 225 pounds, depending on how many beers I had the night before. Golly. And I, I played at Duke at 190 my junior and senior year. Mm. Like I lost, I, I think I started my junior year at 192. And I won every conditioning contest. I didn't start really lifting, lifting until halfway through my second year in the league when I realized, and again, it was like this self-realization of like, all right, if I want to play at this level, uh, I got to do more. I got to lift more. I got to lift my lower body. I got to do all the agility bullshit. I got to do all the mobility bullshit. Like, and I got to do it every day. Mm -hmm. And I got to be the best conditioned athlete every single day. And so <clears throat> it was... That moment, though, at Duke, that sophomore year of that meeting, and then they put me on a, <laughs> they put me on an hourly calendar for the rest of the summer. I still have the sheet. Yeah, I heard about at that. my house. I, I, bro, <laughs> I still was, have the he sheet. He was wilding, G. He trying Dude, to be chill. It was bedtime, <laughs> wake up time. It was everything, bro. This is when you eat. I had to carry a jug of water around campus, right. but I was so committed that that summer. And then I got first team All American, National Player of the Year the next year, and then again my senior year. So. Right. Like it, to me, it was like it was important. Like we didn't win, which still bothers me. We didn't win a championship when I was at Duke, but it was important for me to see what doing more 
meant. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, if you had said to me as a 18 year old, when I walked on campus for summer school, your senior year, you're going to average 27 a game and be the national player of the year. I'll be like, hell no, there's no way. That's crazy. That's crazy. My jersey's gonna be retired. That's crazy. I never had your all-time leading scorer, Duke. That's crazy. I never like, had a doubt, JJ. No, <laughs> never had a doubt, big dog. Yo, so last thing before you get up out of here. I got a last thing. Go ahead. Oh no, right. I wanted to hear about the coaches. He's been coached by some pretty dope people. So I want to hear oh, yeah. some of your favorite coaches. So Coach K, Doc Rivers. Yeah. Okay, I was coach you. Van Gundy. Van Gundy. Van Gundy. Brett Brown, one of my favorite. And then shit, who was that dude? They did you bogus by sending you to Milwaukee. He was out there. We had an interim coach. Yeah, I didn't like that. That didn't make sense. But yeah, yeah, but you can rank them. Um, I I feel like it, maybe not all of them, but I'll tell you who else I played for. Jacques Vaughn loved oh, playing for word? Jacques, and that was that was his first year as a head coach. Mm. He had moved from like fourth assistant in San Antonio and gotten the Orlando job during that first year of the rebuild yeah, that was a after we traded guy. Dwight. Yeah. I loved I loved playing he got for some haters. Um yeah. he got some haters. I was, yeah, was I was setup. with I was with Rick Carlisle briefly in Dallas. Okay. Oh Rick watch and I was hurt, like injured for the seasons by the time we got to the playoffs. So I got to like watch him in a playoff series be a tactician. That was fascinating. Mm. I thought he was great. Mm. Um so like I, I've, in some ways I feel like I've taken something from every every coach I've had. Stan was so detail oriented, and you know the details. I'm not, this is not a knock on Stan, but like the details when we were in Orlando and how we played, like they worked then. They worked yeah. immaculately then. We had top five offense nearly every year. We had yeah. top five defense every like we yeah. we were great, <laughs> and they didn't work later on. The, the game evolved, right? Um, personnel evolved. You know, he had Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard in his prime was one of the five greatest players in the world. Com- Don't at me. Compare like, him easy. To, compare him to Joel Embiid today. Would he have been able to go up against Joel Embiid or stop it? No, 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 no. That's a di- we're talk- no, talking. Dwight was different. Two- well, so what you saying? Dwight was no. Different. I'm saying Dwight's better. No, 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 no. Joel, I'm not saying Joel's Dwight's better. better. I'm saying Dwight. No, but Dwight, it was a different player. A different player. But different I'm player. saying we saw Dwight. Guard Jokic in the bubble. Yeah, I mean, Dwight took well. out Brian too, bro. And Brian, I'm like, saying uh, Joel just got a different package to him. I seen him come down and hit somebody with a cross and pull a fadeaway. I was like, oh my god! But I think Dwight would have matched up defensively against in him. his prime. In his yeah, prime. In his prime. I, I, I think Dwight could have guarded anybody in his in his prime. It was it was it was amazing. To and see. his pick and roll defense, his hands were so good. Pause. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got cursed out because we were scared to go to the paint. Yeah, that was crazy. I keep <laughs> just funnel. You just like you go to the paint. Pressure, pressure the ball and funnel, funnel your man to Dwight like he's a racist. He was unbelievable. He was unbelievable. But I, Joel, Joe, Joel's better. Like yeah, I, I, not, I don't think that's a hot take. No, Joel's I better. I agree. Dwight, Dwight was incredible in his prime. But I was going to say, you know, so I've taken something different from everybody. The, the I've took a lot from Coach K, a lot. Oh, okay. But the one thing that sticks out to me about Coach is I was with him for four years. And I never saw him have a bad day. That's not to say hmm, he okay. didn't make mistakes or like, you know, there were decisions that he made within a game where you're like, why did he do that? I'm saying he never had a bad day in his approach, in his preparation, in his energy, in the way he talked to us, in his uh, strategy around motivating us. Like he was on. 
Do you know what I mean by that? Mm. He was on mm. every single day. I see somebody. And so, no. So like I, I, I that, that's how I, that's how I learned how to be on. Like I, I'm on camera. I'm on. I'm with uh, my kids coaching the game. I'm on. I like it. I'm, I'm at a dinner party and I'm one of the guests that like has to meander about and talk to people. I'm on like, you just, you get in the habit of being on and you're on. Yeah. Of course on the court, you have to be on, especially once you get to the league or like you're out of the league. So that, that environment of just being around that, where it's a mental fuck every day yeah. of like, I can't come to practice with zero energy. I can't, I can't come to, you know, a conditioning run and get seventh place. I'm not doing that. I'm going to be on. And that was from coach. 100%. That was from coach. Last question. Take us to your basketball future. Like, mm. Where are we now? Like, we're coming out of an amazing era. LeBron, Katie's in year 17. Mm. I think we forget. Katie's averaging, he's, Katie's can score 30 whenever he wants, and he's in year 17. Steph just had 37 the other night. He, he missed a three. He finally didn't make a three, um, but he was a couple years in. Um, but we're, we're ushering into a new era. And as older players, because it happened to us a little bit. I'm always conscious of. Let me be. Let me not be too overly critical of the players now. But we all. I think we all can agree on what's missing, like gamesmanship. You know, um, simplicity. You know, we're just talking to JT about getting to his mid range at certain parts at points of the game. You know, all the things that Miami are doing. They, they for some reason they just keep getting to the conference finals and to the finals. Uh, but Jimmy, Jimmy's getting older too. Um, just give me your thoughts on like where the game is, where it's going, and then how do we keep it on the right track? Yeah, um, I I I believe this. I think in terms of overall talent, the league is as talented as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. In terms of overall talent, in terms of how that talent is spread out. I think you can make an argument that right now that talent is as spread out mm -hmm. as it's ever been. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and maybe maybe Phoenix and the Clippers now are like the exception to that. But what we've seen, because the overall talent level is so high, where really good teams have five or six pieces that fit perfectly, and I'm talking about the Nuggets here, I'm talking about the Celtics here, to a degree the Miami Heat as well. I, I don't think the Miami Heat top to bottom are as talented as some teams, but it's cohesive. They got mm -hmm. Spo, they got Jimmy, they got Bam. So I, I think where the, like the league is headed, especially with this second apron coming up where it's going to be prohibitive for even the Denver Nuggets to keep Michael Porter Jr. around potentially, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think the league is in a good place in terms of competitive balance. Mm -hmm. I believe that. In terms of the gamesmanship, I, I there's enough guys that have that that I think the the league is in good hands. Giannis has that. Luca has that. Jokic has that. Um, Joel has that. Those guys are all in their twenties still, and they're foreigners. <laughs> ironically enough, now that's well, unique to name the top like there, four or five guys, and when you're adding it up, that that, that was kind of crazy. You well, that, that is crazy. Yeah. That's a that's a, it seems like that might be the future. I, I didn't. I, you know what? I, I'm naming those guys, and I I probably I I should have said that too. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, it's 
would you agree with me? I think the gripe we have as older players, and maybe every generation has said this, the gripe I would have is, in terms of overall talent, the average player coming in today can do things that I couldn't do mm-hmm. when I was first got the league that I don't think the average guy could do when they, in 95 or 85, mm-hmm. just in terms of the ball handling, the, the shooting range, the footwork. Oh, my God. The footwork. Yeah. Like really, truly mastering gather steps and step backs and all that stuff. Slow step. Um, it's it's at a high point, but in terms of understanding how to play within a team setting, I, there's some room for improvement. Mm. In terms of where the league is going, it's hard to predict these things because I think the league evolves around the best players. Mm-hmm. The league always evolves around the best players. I think the the league had a reaction to Shaq. I think the league had a reaction to Tim Duncan. The league had a reaction to Kobe. The league had a reaction to Steph. Bronze lived <laughs> almost all of that, right? <laughs> and in some ways, like uh, teams have like, all right, we're going to go beat LeBron. Like in his, pro- it was like, all right, how do we beat LeBron? Yep. Right? Um, that is crazy. I think as a general point, the thing I've thought about lately, because I've heard this a lot too, we're going to go back to like big lineups, and we're going to go like. The big is back. And I don't agree with that because I think spacing is still going to reign supreme. We can look at the data and say, oh, offenses are harder to guard than ever. Why would we play two non-shooting bigs? You can't play two non-shooting bigs. So my big take right now, it's not a big take, but my my sort of general take on where we're headed is that the thing that is going to be valuable as each generation moves on of more skill, more skill, more skill, is going to be coaching, I think will be an edge, and I think positional size. Not just size, meaning uh, this. It's like positional size. It's what makes Luka so good. It's what makes Jason Tatum so good. Well, like OKC they have be, positional size. OKC is loaded with positional size for the most yeah. part. I agree. It's wild. It's wild to think how close they are right now. Yeah. I, two years ago, they had the worst offensive rating in the NBA. Yep. In 22. Yeah. The worst offensive rate. And all those kids are like 25 years old or something. <laughs> it's and they're 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, and you look at the numbers, and you're like, yeah, they're like, Lou Dort is supposed to be their worst guy. He's balling. Yeah, he like, and everybody's getting 40 over there. It's it's tough. It's how it'll be good. Well, well Dre, I got one what other quote. I got one question for you. Shoot. I got one question because this is you, you got me thinking now. And this relates to just the Warriors. Um, Because I think another part – that has existed uh, for a long time in the NBA, but I think it's even more important now with the way that defenses switch Mm -hmm. is just the importance of two players whose skill sets and size are a little bit different Mm. because that's kind of how you create advantages. Yep. And so on the Warriors, as much movement and ball movement as you had, like, I always felt like Steph was such a like a gravity pull yep. for the defense that you guys maybe didn't need to. Uh, him and Draymond have a two man game. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but in in the traditional sense of like we're gonna walk it down is three minutes to go and we're gonna put Stockton and Malone in a pick and roll. Like it didn't always seem like you guys necessarily needed to do that. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it's very accurate because. Like you said, it's the gravity pool. And Steve Kerr was really good at that. He knew where the gravity was. And so he can construct a play where 
yeah, I got Steph coming one way, either with a pick and roll or a handoff, or he's coming, or I'm handling, he's coming off a screen. Right, the off-ball screen and you get a slip, right? Every single time. Every single time you get a slip. How many lobs I threw bogey? I threw some bad lobs at him, but they were just like, I just couldn't believe he was so open and I didn't see him. I'm like, wait, somebody's open. Oh, it's bogey and just throwing it somewhere into the basket. But it was always that gravitational pull. And then you had Clay coming off the backside if you put him in the pick and roll. And so it was just like, yo, you really did. And then it was kind of a, well, like we had, people forget we had Kareem, Kareem Rush, uh, Brandon Rush before his knee injury was going to be the leading scorer for the Warriors, like Steph's rookie second year. People forget that. Yeah. And so we had him or we had a Barbosa. Like we had another guy that can at least either attack the basket or shoot it. And so you couldn't leave that guy. And so who you and naturally it ends up Draymond and myself on a two on one. Right. And, and all and that four on three, two on one on the backside. Two on one on the backside was just all day. I mean, you go to game five, game five versus Cleveland, 2017 finals. I think I had 20 something points. And everything was just backside. Either I got a dunk or got a butt naked three on the wing or on 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 uh, the break. Yeah, the, the break. break. <laughs> the break. We call, some place we call it Tiggy. Excuse my language. The break of the three. But it was just all it was. It was like you couldn't leave Katie. You couldn't leave Clay. And then Steph was just doing Steph. So I'm just two on one all day. And but a lot of it was knowing where to be. Where when Steph's coming off the pick and roll because a lot of times it wasn't set up. And I used to always tell the rookies like. Just be on the same side as Steph, no matter what. So if you're the low man, a dunker, if you're the low man, I knew whichever side Steph was on, start on that side. And when he came off, come off to the same side with him. I'm just tracking Steph because the gravity's going to pull with him. Draymond's going to come on the opposite side. Now my man's diagonal to Draymond. If I'm same side, he can guard both of us. I always knew to be at diagonal with Draymond, and they were dead. It was one play. I remember Steph kept flipping the screen, and I kept having to run, trying to position. <laughs> and I was so tired. Coming out of that, but Draymond threw the lob and I caught the dunk. And people were like, what the hell were you doing down there? I'm like, I'm just positioning my man to X, to make an X right. to get to Draymond so it's a lob over the top as opposed to the same side. It's impossible pass. I made a comment. I think it was the Spurs game in the fourth quarter. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving, I was doing the game. And in the second half, I think it was, I think it was late. Uh, they doubled stuff on a pick and roll. He hit the short roll back-to-back lobs for dunks out of that that corner, right? Because it's a four-on-three, and so that X-man is dead. Dead. Like, he's dead, right? And I said, the Warriors do this in their sleep. Like, I would like somebody to put together a montage highlight of every back cut out of the corner after Steph has doubled on the pick and roll. Right. Guys, don't throw me under the bus with anything. Else. No, we don't, bro. <laughs> I got to protect my damn self. <laughs> JJ, JJ, you damn near on Tony Hawk level to black people, bro. Ooh, that's a So if something happened to you, black Twitter would be upset, man. So you keep it, you keep trucking the right way, all right? All right, I will, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate you guys. Yes, Appreciate sir. you guys. Enjoy <laughs> Without a ball, it's just a court. And without your spirit, it's only a game. So, together with the fans, we bring our best. For your next pregame, let's share a twist on a classic. The Hennessy Margarita. A squeeze of fresh lime juice and a bit of agave syrup. Topped off with ice and a salted rim. Mix it, shake it, pour it. And enjoy the spirit of the NBA. Hennessy. 
Without your spirit, it's only a game. 21 and older, please drink responsibly. 